Welcome to the Westside Gathering Podcast, and thanks for making the time to learn and grow with us. Here, you'll find teaching from our live Sunday gatherings. After the message, we'll say a little more about our church and how you can connect. But for now, let's jump right in. Let's, let's jump into this. Um, how many of you, when you were in high school, I'll start with this story, uh, who, loved, who liked like, the questions where you, you had to fill out the answer long form? Okay, this is, this is this hand. And who liked the questions that were multiple choice? Long hand? Who's that? Multiple choice? Yeah, Louis won. Multiple choice won. I was a multiple choice person uh, personally because I loved the opportunity to guess even when I had no clue what the question was about. And I thought, let me figure this out. But th- the negative side of, of those uh, multiple choice questions is that some of the answers looked so close. Like it was like there was a half truth in there, a plausible option. And it's like, I think it's A, but B sounds really compelling. And I think C, there's something in C that tells me I should choose that. And and, and that was the, the bad part of multiple choice because you really had to now think, like, are they leading me astray? Are they tempting me to think something different? And when I think about multiple choice tests and, and that kind of dynamic of it, I think of what you and I encounter daily in our decisions. Often we want to know, like, is this the right way to go? Is this the right decision to make? Is this how we should discern what's happening culturally in this moment or politically or in, in media and things like that? And, and sometimes there's even opportunities before us, and we'd love to just decide and know. Uh, but sometimes some of the answers or the options are just half right or just partially po- plausible, and it's tough, right? It's tough to decide, to decide that or to discern that in the moment. And I want you to keep that image in mind as we jump into this morning's text because we're in a series called Flickering Lampstands and we're, we're looking at these seven letters to seven churches in Asia Minor in the first century, modern-day Turkey, that the Apostle John um, writes to. Jesus gives him words to tell them and Jesus is, is speaking to these churches and we're learning from this message that Jesus has for this ancient church under an oppressive Roman Empire. And the context of the book of Revelation is the word apocalypse. So that's what Revelation means. It's, it's to reveal something, to unveil something. And what John is seeing as he writes this letter in this vision he has is a, like a pulling back of the curtain to see what the church is really facing in their time uh, under Rome at the time. But when we read it today or any church has read it ever since, this letter points us to any moment in history where the church has to wrestle with how they interact with their culture and what it means to be God's living and local presence or part of God's kingdom in their culture and how the church struggles under other cultures or systems that sometimes press against them. And sometimes the answer is very clear and sometimes it feels like, oh, is it like partially true? to go this route. And so today we're looking at this church uh, in a town or a city called Pergamum in, in Asia Minor. And uh, don't you love these names, these city names? They're kind of cool. Uh, Smyrna, Pergamum, things like that. Uh, they make for good novel names. But this, this city, different than, than some of the other ones, this was like a mountaintop city. It sat on a natural high mountain. It was visible from far away when you would get close to it. And it also, if you were in the city or on the top part, you'd have a dominating view over the region around you. This city was known for its love for knowledge. It had one of the largest ancient libraries in the ancient world, over 200,000 parchments 
200,000 parchments. That was the version of a book back then, basically. And so that's a lot of material for the ancient world in the first century. This was a key center for Rome. Uh, one of the governors, one of the most influential governors lived in that city. Uh, he was quite aggressive and violent, and he had much influence in the Roman Empire. There was a shrine to the emperor uh, in that city as well from AD 29. So imagine that towards the end of Jesus' life, what's going on in Palestine, and this you know, small thing slowly taking place from a person from Nazareth, coming towards the end of Jesus' ministry, coming close to the cross, and then eventually the resurrection, Rome already has influence in Pergamum. The emperor already has influence in this town. They don't know that one day, this Jesus who rises from the grave will have followers that start spreading into towns and villages across the ancient world, and they spread to Pergamum. And there's people that begin to believe in Jesus and follow Jesus. And this church begins to start and grow in this ancient city. The religion or religious climate of the time in that city was very pluralistic. There was a temple to Aklepios that was a god who was a god of healing. And they looked to this god in that time. There was, um, uh, there was temples to Athena and Zeus. You guys know those names from you know, novels and Greek literature and even movies. And um, I, I went to a school where half the population of the school was Greek. I knew some Athenas. I never knew some Zeuses. But I know Josh's Trim's dog is named Zeus, and he's a really big dog. So um, that's my connection to someone named Zeus in the canine world. I just diverted completely off track, but no problem. Um, but here's the thing, right? Very pluralistic religiously in Pergamum. But remember what we said last week. You can do whatever you want in the empire as long as you honor the emperor. You can do whatever you want. You can, you can worship the gods you want. You can live the way you want. You can pursue business opportunities as you wish as long as you honor the emperor and the empire. And while these temples were really important, they never took allegiance away from Rome. But then this little group of people start growing called Christ followers, Christians, people of the way. And they were so convinced and convicted that the way of Jesus was the best way that the way of Jesus was the right way, that the kingdom of God was breaking in to their world and their culture and even in the Roman Empire. And now all of a sudden, Pergamum felt like one of the most dangerous spots in the empire for Christians. So I want to read this letter together with that backdrop in mind as you, as you think about it. So here's the words of Jesus to this church. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write... These are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you are living, where Satan's throne is. Yet you are holding fast to my name, and you did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak, um, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel, so that they would eat food sacrificed to idols and practice fornication. So you also have some who hold to the teaching of the, the Nicolaitans. Repent then, and if not, I will come to you soon and make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give a white stone, 
And on the white stone is written a new name that no one knows except for the one who receives it. Yes, God, speak to us through these words today, we pray. Um, there's some cryptic language in this, in this message to Pergamum, a little different than the other two churches we've looked at so far. But the same thing happens is where Jesus is refers to himself as, takes another line from Revelation chapter 1, refers to himself here at the beginning, and then again says, I know, and he always says this when he speaks to these churches, he knows them. He's the one standing in the middle of the lampstands that we learned about at the beginning of this. He's the one who's with them and among them and guides them and is present with them. He says, I know. Then he says, I know where you're living. I know the particularities of the place you live, of the city you live in, of the, of the struggles you face, of, of the culture that's around you. And then he begins to describe his view of their culture at the moment. And he says, this is where Satan's throne is. I know where you're living, where Satan's throne is. This is not literally Satan's throne. It's not like, you know, where does Satan live? He lives in Pergamum. That's not it. But it's, it's a metaphor. It's symbolic for Satan's influence in that city. Satan's throne, if you think about this, the location, the influence of the city, it was on, it was on a mountaintop, so it had this throne-like feature to it in the landscape. You had the temple to this three or four gods. You had the shrine to Rome, all set up, a perfect kind of location, feel, look, like a throne-like image. And what Jesus is referring to here is this idea that Satan has hijacked the cultural powers, the political powers, the, 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 the powers in, in the systems for his purposes. Remember, Paul says this to the Ephesian church, our fight's not against flesh and blood. We don't fight against people. We fight against authorities and powers and principalities. And Satan loves to hijack systems and powers and use them for his purposes. And often one of the main purposes he has is to give false hope to humanity. To give false hope through politics, false hope through culture, false hope through false gods. Now, in that era, the gods were very evident because there was a temple to the god of Athena or Zeus or Artemis and things like that. And you can go to the local shop and pick up little Artemis dolls, and they were the little, you know, version of this god. Today, gods look differently, but we still worship different things. We still worship things in entertainment and in culture and at the mall and in our, the way we use our money and all these things. Satan's approach is always hijacking cultural powers and systems to give false hope to humanity. And also, he'll often use that to squeeze against the church. But this church is resilient. Jesus says that this church is resilient, at least in this season, that despite living in what Jesus describes as Satan's throne, where Satan dwells, this hot spot of pressure for followers of Jesus, they have, Jesus says, they have held fast. They have held fast to the name of Christ, and they have not denied their faith in Jesus. In other words, they've been faithful to Jesus. They've been faithful witnesses in their belief, in their worship, in their presence in that city. And they've continued to trust Jesus above everything else, they continue to follow him and trust his authority. So Jesus commends them for that. But again, he says, I have something against you, similar to what he said to the Ephesian church. He has something against them because in one season they have been holding fast and not denying the faith. But there's been another season of their life where they've started to crack a little bit. 
And they've been getting caught up with different teachings that have come into their small church and different ideas that have led them to compromise. And here, here's something I want you to get, and we put, I put this on the screen for you. This is what happens when our thinking and our lifestyle takes a shift. And this is what was happening to this church. Their, their thinking, influenced by these certain ideas, was, and then their lifestyle, usually it's your thinking and then your lifestyle, began, began to shift. And what was happening is they moved from being a contrast to the culture to compromising with the culture. They moved from being a church or Christ followers that were a contrast to that culture to then compromising with that culture. So instead of holding fast and not denying, they're sitting down at the cult festivals and they're becoming loose sexually. This is what Jesus refers to. But I want you to just remember this for a second. It looks like this church had these two seasons, a season of crisis and a season of comfort. And we understand this in human nature. We understand this even in world history. I remember reading some history about um, Winston Churchill. Apparently, Winston Churchill was a phenomenal leader during the war because he could get into the fight and find clarity. But as soon as England stepped away from war times and got into more comfortable times, Winston didn't, Churchill didn't know how to lead as well. It was, there was something about this crisis moment that his gifts leaned into, but in comfort times, his gifts didn't work as well. And there's a difference between crisis and comfort. The crisis moment is evident for this church, and Jesus alludes to it when he says this. He says, in the days of Antipas, he says, you didn't deny your faith even even in the days of Antipas, my witness. Antipas, and he calls him a faithful witness, this theme that comes up over and over again in Re- Revelation. Antipas was someone from their own church, the only martyr that's given a name in Revelation. Someone for their own church who was martyred for his faith. The Christians in Pergamum knew Antipas. And there was a moment where the days of Antipas, that moment, that season in their church's life, when this person was taken and killed for his faith. And Jesus says, even in those days you held fast, even in those days you didn't deny the faith. But then there was another season for them. It wasn't the days of Antipas. It seemed like they were out of that season and maybe there was a more comfortable season. And the tests were different. It wasn't death, it was delicacy. It wasn't persecution, it was pleasure. It was pleasure. I love Eugene Peterson comments on this, and he, and he says this. He says, sometimes it's easier to die for the truth in a crisis than to live the truth during a dull week at work. Isn't that true? Because when we're in a crisis, we're ready. We're ready. We're like, something's going to go down. I've got to be ready for this. Let me gear up. But when, we're not, when nothing's going on, when it's a boring week, who's ready? Nobody's ready. That's when you're often caught off guard, right? And so Jesus speaks to this church in this season when it was one thing, they died. some of them died for the truth in crisis, but didn't even catch the temptations during a season of comfort. And he refers to the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Balaam was an Old Testament figure, so it's a metaphor of what happens in Israel's history. And the Nicolaitans is like it was modern. Now, Balaam, like if you got time, go and read Numbers chapter 22 to 24. It's a, great, um, it's a great piece of the Old Testament. It's actually pretty hilarious um, because it's during Israel's wilderness journey as Israel is leaving Egypt. You know, they're 40 years in the desert. And, um, 
And then they're going on their way to Canaan, the land that God promises. And Balaam is a false prophet that's hired by a king, a Moabite king. And the funny part is that God uses a donkey to correct this false prophet on the way to what he's supposed to do when he gets hired by this king. That's the funny part. You've got to read it yourself. It's hilarious. Now, King Balaam, he's like, Balak is like, he's the Moabite king, and he is so frustrated with Israel because he sees this people. They got nothing. They got no military support. They got no weapons. They, they, they only eat daily. They've got no cargo with them. God, like, provides them, like, daily in the, in the wilderness, this manna from heaven. And the Moabites are like, I don't get this. I don't understand this. This is, like, they're getting frustrated with the Israelites, it's like these people shouldn't exist. They, they shouldn't survive. They, they have nothing to survive. And so he's getting frustrated with them. And he wants to curse Israel. So he hires a prophet, a false prophet named Balaam. And he wants him to come and curse Israel. That's the idea, to cripple Israel, to curse them seemed appropriate. That would be maybe the thing to do. But on Balaam's journey, on the donkey he's riding, three times the donkey stops mid, you know, in the journey because he sees an angel of the Lord stopping the way. And obviously, like, you know, Balaam gets thrown off the donkey, Balaam gets hit, Balaam gets bothered, and then finally the donkey speaks to him, and it's like crazy from there. So Balaam gets there, and he's like, he tries to curse Israel three times. He's like, he want, like the curse wants to come out of his mouth, but only blessing comes out of his mouth. Three times. He's like, oh my gosh, I don't know what's going on here. I got hired for this gig to curse these people. Balaam, Balak is like, what's happening? So Balaam thinks, okay, I can't curse them. Something's stopping me from cursing them. Maybe it's the angel, the donkey saw. I don't know what's going on. He's so frazzled, but he's like, I have an idea. We're going to throw a party. We're going to have amazing food. We're going to have the best food around. And as he sees the Israelite men... He says, we're going to send them women. This was a male-dominated culture. I'm sorry. This is just what it was. And then he throws a party, sends girls, boom, Israel falls. Like, falls for the trap. Like, in minutes, they're eating non-kosher food and sleeping around. Forty years, they're walking in the desert. Forty years, they're following austerity. Forty years, they're faithful to the Lord. And one night of comfort, and they all fall like leaves. Crisis, comfort. This was the teaching of Balaam. This was now the modern teaching of what Jesus refers to as, the, as the, uh, this other group of people. Everything, it's like the teaching is saying, everything's okay. Don't worry about the food and the girls or the guys. You're teaching good doctrine. Your worship is strong. You've been resilient. You haven't worshipped Caesar. You haven't gone to the temple and done the incense thing. A little dinner and dancing with the enemy won't affect your witness. Everyone's doing it around here. It's totally okay. And so this is where they get trapped. First with food. Now, food really wasn't a big deal. Even Paul said, it's not what you eat. Let's be mindful of this. He's talking to the Jews and the Gentiles in some of his letters. Jesus says, it's not what comes into your mouth. It's what comes out of your mouth. But these Christians, they were sitting down at the cult festivals, participating with and celebrating the gods of their culture. So this isn't a caution to be with your neighbors. This isn't Jesus saying, don't be with your neighbors. Don't hang out with people. We should. But here's the caution. It's the caution to build intimacy with the themes and ideas and false hopes and practices that lure us away from Christ. 
The idea where, where, where they were following this teaching that led them to sit down and eat this food sacrificed from idols wasn't the food, but it was the moment and the experience and the posture and building intimacy with the themes and ideas and false hopes and practices that would lead them away from Christ. And this is the kind of discernment when we're looking at the possibilities around us and some look partially true, plausibly an option. We wish it would be so easy, cut and dry. My daughter went to a party recently, and she's going to hate me for telling this story. Is that okay, Julie? I won't, don't worry, I won't. It's not embarrassing. It's great. So, so she, went, she went to this party, and she found out as she was there, she was going to stay like an hour and a half. Within 30 minutes, she found out that someone had COVID there, and, or was like coming off of COVID. And so she was home in 30 minutes. I'm like, what happened? She's like, well, they didn't tell us. Somebody was like seven days after they had COVID, they're in their bedroom, like finishing their quarantine, and now I show up, and we were, we were a little nervous because we, we were going to host my, uh, her grandmother, Franca's mom, and so it was a cautious moment. It was, this was a black and white issue. She showed up, going to stay 90 minutes, someone has COVID in the bedroom, the other, okay, you know what, there's a big viral load in this place, I'm going home. Super easy decision. Now, if she went to that party... And there was ideas and practices that wouldn't make her physically sick or wouldn't put her grandmother at risk, but maybe spiritually sick or certain ideas and practices that would be, you know, kind of like partially okay, but partially not okay. That would be a harder choice, right? That would be a much harder choice, but still a moment to discern. That's what was going on with this city, with this church. And then there were sexual practices, the Roman culture had a very loose sexual ethic. There was a phrase, and I'm sorry, it sounds much more male-oriented for the time, but it said, prostitutes were for pleasure, concubines were for company, and wives were for stability at home. So what was that? There was a very casual approach to sexuality. Maybe an extreme view of that is like our hookup culture today. But even not that extreme, just slowly allowing sex to be seen as casual fun and entertainment or pleasure outside of marriage. When ironically, so many people, even today, even in our culture where it has become so liberal, you can talk to people who have traumatic experiences after sex because they know that they've intimately tied themselves to someone who they are not intimately in love with. And there's a, there's a result that comes from that. Lewis Smedes said this, said it so well. He said, nobody can go to bed with someone and leave his or her soul parked outside. The demand for self-restraint is not a killjoy rule plastered on the abundant life by anti-sexual saints. That's a great quote, by the way. It is respect for reality. The moral law fits the inner reality of sex. The reality that you can never just have sex. You're always giving a part of yourself. And this is part of the sexual ethic of the New Testament where Jesus says and calls them out on fornication, sex outside of marriage. Because the scripture calls us to this beautiful, pleasurable, intimate sexuality inside of marriage because intimacy is so deep, only a committed love within a marriage relationship can sustain its power. So these are the two things the church struggled with in their comfort. In crisis, hey, we got this clear. We're going to not deny Jesus. In comfort, they got lured away. 
And this is an example for us. Maybe not only these two issues, but for you and me. It's the battle of our minds. It's the battle of ideas. And this is Satan's trap towards us. Because the church can be bombarded by political ideas and cultural ideas and social ideas that lure us away from Christ. And when things seem to be going well and easy and it's not so hard and whatever, some of these ideas become much more easier to grab a hold of us. See, it was easy in a crisis when Antipas died and was martyred, but it was harder to catch. It was harder to catch this invitation and these sexual advances during dinner and parties because life was a little bit easier. And here's the thing. Here's the thing that I just want to kind of bring down to this is we always live where Satan lives. And if you're here for the first time, like, I don't like, you know, talk about Satan every Sunday. But this is the reality. We always live where Satan lives. Because we always live where Satan influences. Because Satan is always trying to hijack the powers and the systems and the culture around us for his purposes. And this is important for us to always be aware of. On, on the flip side, I want us to understand, you and me, we're always neighbors with the powers. We're always neighbors with the authorities. We're always neighbors with satanic influence. There is no city, there is no country, there is no neighborhood in the world where we will not wrestle against the powers and authorities that are in contrast to God's kingdom. Some look so black and white, but some are very gray. But there's no place in the world that we can hide from being neighbors with the powers. Thankfully, Paul said, your fight is not against flesh and blood, so don't fight your neighbor. And don't talk bad about people online. And don't even want to kill certain uh, you know, leaders in the world. I, I, I don't pray that, that Putin dies. I pray that this, this situation is resolved. Because we don't long for any of that. Our fight is not against flesh and blood. It's against the powers. We're always neighbors with powers. Because Satan does this with ideas. It's the battle of our mind. But here's the, the really amazing thing. Jesus fights back. Jesus doesn't fight with a, with a literal sword. He fights with ideas and truth. So, so how does Jesus introduce himself? These are the words of him who has a sharp, two-edged sword in his mouth, which represents the word of God. And then he says later on to the to this same church, he says, I will come to you soon and make war against them with what? With the sword of my mouth. And then he says, after all that, he says, let anyone who has ears... Listen to what the Spirit is saying. Again, words, truth, ideas. This is important for how you read the rest of Revelation. Because Jesus, or the church, never fights with violence. Jesus, and including his followers, never come to destroy a people. People have misinterpreted you know, Jesus on a white horse with a sword in his mouth and blood on his garment. And they're like, oh, Jesus is going to come and win the day. He's going to slash everybody and kill them all. And it's like, what? Like, like, have you read the rest of the New Testament? Why would Jesus do the complete opposite of what he's done? Right? But we, we're, we're humans. We love this. We love, like, to see that. We want to, yeah, just kill them all. Jesus, or the church, never fights with violence. The sword in his mouth is his word, and the blood on his garment has already been there because he's already died. He's already been the slain lamb. 
He's already given his life sacrificially under the authorities and powers. That's the victory. And so he fights back with his truth. Jesus' strength is, is in his truth. Jesus' strength is in his truth, and his truth sets you free. And his truth sets us free. See, some, have belie- some of us have believed that politics will save us, and we've been left hanging dry. And some of us have believed that the pursuit of wealth and, and stuff and consumerism will save us, and it's left us dry. And some of us have believed that a pursuit of pleasure and even casual sexuality, whether you're single in that or whether you're married and you, and, and, you, know, you pursue that, this is just, and it leaves you dry. And you realize it's left me dry. The ideas, the ideologies that the world brings me is leaving me dry because Satan hijacks these things to give us false hope. So we fight in a way because it's a battle of our minds and ideas. And we nurture it in this way. And I'll just wrap it up this way. We must be aware, especially in times of comfort, that compromise is the easiest. Now, I want to encourage you as a Christian, don't make everything a fight. Don't make everything a crisis. Even over COVID, you know, like some Christians in churches made like masks a crisis or something. Don't make everything a crisis. But be aware that in times of comfort, compromise is the easiest. That's the one way to resist. The second way to resist is our communion with Jesus is what will nurture our discernment and discern the limits of our communion with culture. I'm not telling you to stay away from culture. Some people will just be like completely like go live off the grid. Don't go to any, like never go downtown. Don't, don't, don't enjoy our city. No, 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 no. It's not about how far away we stay from our city. It's how close we are with Jesus. That's, that's the key. And so communion with Christ nurtures our discerning, our discernment of the limits that we commune with our culture, the intimacy we have or develop with the themes and ideas in our culture. There are cultural idols around us. We live in a culture where Satan also lives. The powers are our neighbors. And the more we commune with Christ, the more we can discern the limits of our communion with worldly powers and systems and ideas. And that leads to the last part, which is nurturing our mind with Christ's ideas. So you can better discern where Satan, what Satan is hijacking. Not all ideas are bad. I personally, I love to read widely, and many people here love to read widely. There's some great things out there that you can read and learn and grow from and, and great programs in university and great things going on in our culture and great art that's happening in our city and, and great you know, TV and movie and scripting and wonderful things. Not all ideas are bad. Some are wonderful. Because God has made humans, whether they're Christians or not, to think and govern and create and delight in these things. But in our sinfulness, in our brokenness, we can also develop ideas that run against God's best vision for life. And so that's how Satan hijacks these things. That's important. Daryl Johnson says it like this. We live... We live fully human lives to the degree that we see ourselves as we really are, the world as we really are, and God as he really is. And that will help us build nurture resistance or resilience in our culture. I'm going to invite the band to come up as we want to close sharing communion today. But I want to leave you with this promise. 
And, and here's this promise when we follow Jesus. Jesus says to this church, even in the middle of, you know, they had their high, high moment of, of faith and holding fast in this crisis moment, they had their failure in this comfort moment. They failed. And Jesus is highlighting this. And he says, I have this against you. But here's, I love, here's Jesus' promise. He says, to those who conquer, again, conquering is not fighting, to those who are faithful, who are victorious to the end. Jesus I, I, says, I have these two things for you. I have these two things for you. And the first one, he says, is I've hidden manna for you. Manna is that supernatural substance that God provided Israel in the wilderness. Jesus says, I have this hidden manna for you. The world might not always see it, but it's for you. I'm your sustenance. I'm your source. I'm your life. And Jesus later says, I'm the bread of life. Everyone who partakes of me will have life. See, only he gives us life as God designed for us. He satisfies. He fulfills. He nurtures. He nourishes. He heals. And the intimacy that we often seek, that culture falsely wants to give us hope with, Christ gives to us freely and fully. Jesus says, those who conquer, you will, you will know a supernatural satisfaction and sustainment that no one can have unless they participate in me, in my life. And then he says, and, and, and I will give you a white stone. There's so many ways to interpret this, but the beauty of it is a stone with a new name on it. And the Apostle Paul says, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. In other words, we are now called friends of God. We are now given a new identity in Christ. We are now find this identity in Jesus. See, the search for the human soul, the search for the human soul, and especially if you're here today and you're, you're wondering like, well, what, what does God want for me? The search for the human soul for identity, the questions of who I am and what I am and why am I around is found in Jesus naming us. In Jesus saying, here's your new identity. We were with him and with his family and with him eternally. And he says, you can be made new. And Jesus, this is Jesus' promise to them. You guys can start. Move forward. This is his promise to them. So we're going to end and we're just going to, we're going to pray right now before we take communion. But I want to just invite you just to think in this moment where you're at. Um, hey, Jesus, Jesus offered this life and this grace even to the Christians in Pergamum that had fallen into that trap. Maybe you've fallen into that trap in one way, shape, or form. Maybe the two things we mentioned in the text, maybe it's other things. And Jesus is saying, hey, you can, you can repent. You can turn around. You can, you can recognize this. And there's life, sustaining life for you in Christ. He says, in me, there's still sustaining life for you. And so if that's you, even if you've been following Jesus for a year or 20 years, Christ offers that to you. But maybe you're watching online or here today and, and, and you've never really began to embrace the life of Jesus. And, and you know, you know, your soul is longing for these things that the human soul longs for. 
and all these other ideologies in our world fall short. They're not all bad, but they fall short. And here Jesus says, come to me, receive me. I, will, I have life for you. you. You can begin following Jesus today and start slowly experiencing the nurturing life of Christ in your life. And by that, you'll start recognizing the partial truths and possible scenarios that aren't really the best way because he will start to give you discernment. So I'm going to pray for you before we take communion today. Our Heavenly Father, we live in a, in a time where um, ideas uh, travel so fast and um, we don't need to have a hundred conversations at the market or at a family party to understand this. It's just all over the internet. It's all over the world. It's so fast. It's through media. And Lord, we live in an era where some of the, the, the answers in the multiple choice questions can feel partly right. Sometimes it's hard. Especially for us, Lord, we admit, Lord, we, we live in a city, in a, in a, in a country, in a part of the world that we've had a relative amount of comfort. And sometimes that has made our discernment weaker. And we just acknowledge that. I acknowledge that, God. Sometimes my discernment, my resolve is, is weaker because the struggle is not as apparent, not in your face. And so, God, we just, we, we just admit that openly. And, Lord, we long for the double-edged sword of Jesus, his truth, to pierce through our hearts, to pierce through our thinking, to pierce through the false stories we have said yes to or been tempted with, to expose them for what they really are. because we long to hold fast to you and we long to cherish and delight in the beautiful life that comes when Jesus is our source. So we pray this in your name and we pray for anyone today who is beginning to decide to follow Jesus, that their, their next step into following Christ, Lord, they would recognize your call, your invitation that they come to see Jesus for who he really is, Lord and King and Savior, the one who holds truth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message helps guide you on your spiritual journey of discovering the life and message of Jesus. We update this podcast weekly, so why not hit subscribe and journey with us? Who are we? Westside Gathering is a local church in the West Island of Montreal. We're a simple community of faith where we want you to feel welcome, even if you're not into church or religion. We meet every Sunday, but you can also find smaller groups, environments, and resources for all ages between Sundays. Find out more at westsidegathering.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Vimeo. We'd love to hear from you. Ask a question. Ask for help or let us know how we can pray for you. If you'd like to contribute financially, just go to westsidegathering.com forward slash giving. Until next time, 
peace. <laughs>